Shall we begin with prayer this morning? Dear Jesus, Father, we just rejoice in your presence in this meeting this morning. We thank you that, Father, we have open ears to hear what you are saying to the church even now. Father, I want to pray for all of those, Father, for, who for some reason or other haven't been able to find the new meeting hall this morning. We just ask you to bless them wherever they uh, have been this morning. And Father, we ask you to anoint them. And Father, please improve their geography, Lord, that they should, in fact, be able to find the place next time. Father, I am asking, Lord, that you will indeed quieten our hearts, that, Father, we should be attentive to your word. Father, I thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet. Father, it preserves us. It keeps us from going wrong. Father, we know that in these days of itching ears, when men are seeking teachers after their own lusts, Father, it's so wonderful to come again to the clear water of the Word of God. And Father, I do ask in the name of Jesus that, Father, this Word may cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and that, Father, many, many people should be set free and come into a deeper relationship with you through the revelation of your truth. This morning, Father, may we take a step forward, Father, to know you more and to love you more. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In the Fellowship Life series, I've been dealing with various issues that affect Fellowship Life. And if you remember, I talked some weeks ago now about the aims of a fellowship, and I actually outlined the six major aims uh, that God has whenever a group of people start meeting together. And I divided these six aims into three groups, which I call priorities, and I've if you remember, I said that if these priorities are kept in order, then in fact the fellowship will thrive, then in fact God's great purpose will be seen in the midst. The first priority, of course, concerned our 100% commitment to God. That comes above everything. You are not committed to men first, you are committed to God and to his word first of all. Secondly, we saw our 100% commitment to one another. And thirdly, in the list of priorities, came our 100% commitment to the world Jesus died to save. At the present moment, we have just completed the second priority, and last time I gave a Bible study entitled One Another, in which I talked about uh, our obligations to one another. Now, before I come on to the third priority, which is, of course, our commitment to the world Jesus died to save, which includes, of course, evangelism and doing good deeds in the world, I have today to actually stop and say that there is a subject which overlaps priority two and three. That is our uh, commitment to one another and our commitment to the world. And this is the subject that I have called for this morning, local area groups. For some time we've had local area groups, and gradually, God has been bringing them into shape. Well, this morning, I want to actually give teaching on what local area groups are all about. You know, whenever a fellowship begins, you are faced with a dilemma. And I'm sorry to disappoint you, but every single fellowship, which, whatever it is, is going to be faced with this dilemma. When the fellowship begins, it's nice and small and cosy. And everyone has very nice, close, intimate fellowship. But after a time, the people in that group are expecting to see growth. Some fellowship groups, it has to be said, do not see growth. And this is a problem because although they can maintain the deep, close, intimate fellowship that they've always had, after a while it gets slightly claustrophobic, you know. And people come into the meeting, it's, it's the same handful of faces, and there they all are. And after a while, people begin to find disillusionment set setting in, and they begin to say, why are we not growing at this particular point? What is the reason? What's the hold-up in our fellowship? We've sought the Lord, we've been praising the Lord, and yet there doesn't seem to be any growth. And so they find that although the intimate fellowship is still there in principle, soon the disillusionment comes in in such a measure that after a while they don't even want to go to the meetings. And that's a problem that small groups, which have remained small, often face. And then, of course, they need very careful handling, and they have to see that it's important to praise God, even if you're by yourself. It doesn't matter. Other fellowships, however, don't have that problem. 
other fellowships come along and uh, God seems to just bless them and bless them and bless them. And at first, after being just a small group, when a few people get added, all the people start praising the Lord. Oh, it's wonderful. We've got a new couple who joined us. Oh, isn't that fantastic? And after a while, they've had an addition of some six people and they say the fellowship has increased by 100% in the last six months. And it really is exciting. The trouble is, if it continues, there comes the day when you actually have great problems because you can't fit in the hall anymore. This is the problem we've, of course, had. And uh, you tend to find that you come to a meeting and there are quite a number of people you can't even name anymore. You recognize their faces just, but you can't actually name them. And so you begin very often to find that people start longing for the deep, close, intimate little group that they used to be. I have known some people, by the way, actually leave a big group to try and join a small group to get back that intimate fellowship. May I warn you against that? That's a fool's uh, answer to the problem. Because you see, if you join a small group, within a few months you'll be back in the same dilemma. If they don't grow, then you'll be saying, well, why aren't we growing? If they do grow, within a few years you've got the same problem. So obviously that isn't the answer. Of those two problems, we have the latter. We have seen continual growth in the midst of the fellowship. It's gone on and on and on growing. We've had an influx. We've had people saved. We've had people who have been healed, people who've been delivered, who have then come and joined the fellowship. And there have been others who just wanted the Word of God and wanted the freedom of the Spirit and wanted body ministry, and they've joined as well. And so we've had this influx. And it's the second of the two dilemmas that uh, actually has affected us. May I say that a healthy fellowship should have a constant influx, but a healthy fellowship should also have a constant outflow as well. And one of the delights of my heart, although it's very sad, is that we're beginning to see an outflow. People who are leaving the fellowship, not because they're out with anyone, in fact they're going to leave and it's going to break their hearts to leave, but because God has called them to other places and sometimes very strange places indeed, and God is sending them out of there with what they've learnt in the midst, and they're going sometimes to small fellowships to help these fellowships develop. That's a very good sign of a healthy fellowship, and one that we are going to see more and more as time actually goes on. May I say also, and this is for people in other fellowships who may be listening to the tapes, you'll also find others who will leave for other reasons. For example, you always get the ambitious man who comes along, he hears your pretty thriving fellowship, and why? He's always felt God would have him a as a minister in a very thriving fellowship. So he turns up on the doorstep and within two weeks wants to be an elder in the midst. And of course all the sheep look at him and say, oh dear, this raw ambition, Lord deal with his raw ambition. And after six months he wonders why he hasn't been appointed an elder already, can't understand why the other elders aren't genuflecting and all the rest. And after a while, he'll say, oh dear, this isn't exactly my scene, so I'm going to try and find another fellowship, and on he'll go. Others, of course, uh, come along and they just find after a few weeks, well, this particular fellowship is not, if you'll forgive the English expression, my cup of tea. And uh, so they, after a few weeks, will pass through. May I say this, that one of the rights that God has given us is the right of religious freedom. And it's a right that we must all fight for and all support. People have a right to choose where they can worship and they must have freedom of choice. And that's why I've constantly said in our own fellowship, do not come along to our fellowship under any form of bondage. Please don't. Go and find the fellowship that suits you. But I would just add this. If you can't get on in two or perhaps three fellowships, it's time you started looking at yourself to see whether perhaps there might be something wrong with you. One fellowship is understandable. Well, they're a pretty bad lot there, you know, and I'm a pretty sorted out fellow and I can't stand the bondage they're in. Then you go into the second place and then you have problems again. At that point you've got to say, Lord, is the problem really in me? And perhaps you go on to a third place and listen, if by that time you really can't get on, the problem definitely is in you and it's time you stopped and started asking the Lord to deal with your life. It's not the other's faults, you know, it's your fault. I am in this fellowship because God has called me to be in this fellowship. I love the Word of God and I love the freedom to preach the Word of God. 
I love body ministry because it's in the Word of God and we have freedom to have body ministry in the midst. I love the move of the Spirit. And there are other things. That's why I'm here. And I'm not here under bondage. I'm here because I want to be. That doesn't mean to say it's always easy. God says in his word, there will be times of pressure. And you will have times of pressure in the fellowship, which after all is designed to be a pressure cooker. It's there to tenderize you very fast. And most of them do it very well, praise the Lord. So you will have problems, but nevertheless, if your heart is for God and you've got the vision of where you are, then with all the, the freedom that's in your heart, go to those meetings and you enjoy God in the midst. The problem, however, that we have to face is this. With tremendous expansion, is it still possible for us to enjoy intimate fellowship within this large amorphous mass of people? And I think just as importantly, is it possible for there to be the deep caring of individuals that there ought to be in a fellowship? The great news I have to tell you is, yes, it is possible. Not with everyone, but it is possible in the midst. And the great news that I also have to tell you is this, that God is an expert with large numbers. Everything God has touched has produced fruit in the most wonderful abundance. And so we have here a Bible which gives many, many examples of how God coped with large numbers. And I have to tell you this, there's nothing stereotyped. Always God adapts for the individual situation, you know? I want to give uh, just a few examples. For example, if you take uh, Abraham, Abraham began as a single individual, but before many years, um, his family had, had multiplied to such an extent that there were millions of them. And in fact, 70-odd people went into Egypt, and within just a few generations, there were two and a half million of these Jews, all Israel, all God's chosen people. Now, how was God going to cope with that particular situation? The answer is he did something wonderful. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, was blessed with 12 sons. Some of them were pretty awful sons, but he was blessed with 12 sons, and these 12 went on to be the leaders of tribes within this fellowship of Israel, as it were. And so Israel was very neatly divided into 12 groups. They all had the oracles of God. They all had the appointment of God. They all were called of God. But now they're in 12 wonderful units. And then you remember one of the 12, a man called Joseph, was given a double portion blessing. And out of him came two tribes called after his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So Israel was then divided into 13 groups. Now that was a pretty convenient type of division and it helped them enormously. Within each tribe, you also had family units as well, and this enabled you to locate one individual. I, let's just turn in the Bible and have a look at these particular things. Go to uh, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel and chapter 10. No, I think we'll begin chapter 9. 1 Samuel 9. And you'll see the type of principle... It's one that you, you know very well. It's obvious with two and a half million people, you can't have close intimate fellowship with them all. This is a problem that most of us have actually met from time to time. Verse 1, now there was a man of Benjamin, there's his tribe, whose name was Kish, and then you get the family groupings. And these family groupings were within the tribe of Benjamin. The son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a mighty man of power, and he had a son whose name was Saul. You see the division that's given there. Benjamin with the families within Benjamin. When Samuel had to appoint Saul as king, he used this. Just go over to Samuel uh, chapter 10 and verse 20. They're asking for a king, and so God said, all right, I'll give you a king, even though it means you've thrown over my kingship. And verse 20 says this, And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. And the tribes processed before Samuel, and he reached up to the Lord and said, Lord, is it Judah? No, it's not Judah. Is it Issachar? No, it's not Issachar. Is it Gad? No, it's not Gad. And then Benjamin came, and the Lord said, You've hit it. This is the one. And so he says, Right, Benjamin, all the rest of you can go home. 
And then he had this mass of Benjamin before him. And verse 21, when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was taken, and Saul the son of Kish was taken. So they then assembled in their groups, and he said, it's in this group, the rest can now go home, and then he isolated the individual family. Do you see this uh, grouping that occurred, and within these family groups they have very close relationship indeed. By the way, Moses found the sheer numbers a terrible problem. Just after the exodus, he actually sat down, at, he was at his father-in-law's place at the time, Jethro, and he sat down and he started judging all the people. And from early in the morning to late at night, there was Moses judging all the disputes that the people had. Jethro comes up to him and says, it's not good what you're doing, absolutely not good. He says, you'll be worn out and they'll be worn out. You'll all be worn out. And uh, Jethro has to give Moses the word of the Lord. And it was this, to appoint other men to do the judgment. And so he appointed one man over thousands, one over hundreds, one over fifties, one over tens, and so on. And the, uh, the thing that they had to do, they had to judge on the little matters, whereas Moses would judge on the big matters. By the way, I used to know everyone very well in the fellowship in the early days. I used to go for meals all around the place. Being a single man, it was really wonderful to have fellowship over a meal. Saved me cooking as well, which is tremendous. And I used to get know absolutely everyone. And you know, I, in the, some years ago, I tried to continue this. And it ended up with me being absolutely frazzled. I wasn't getting around to see anyone at all. And it was at that time that God said, it's time that elders were appointed. And later on, it's time that leaders were appointed. You see? And so God spoke the words of Moses to me at that particular time. said, it's no use, you'll be absolutely worn out, and what is more, valuable time, which you should have been spending studying the Word of God, is going to be taken by your trying to do all of that. Well, there's another example of how God subdivided the people. A lovely example that I like to take is dear old Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah was a genius. There's no question about it. And Nehemiah was given the task by God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the walls had uh, tumbled down. The whole city of Jerusalem was in a terrible state. And so he asked certain people to come and move into the ruins. It sounds a bit like those who went into Clydesdale in the early days, you know, among the ruins. And um, uh, they went into Jer Jerusalem and they filled the city and they lived all around the city. And Nehemiah then had the task of actually rebuilding the wall. Now, he could have done it like this. He could have got all the people together, even though they weren't craftsmen, and formed one massive gang of workers and said, now let's move as a gang along the wall and build it bit by bit all the way around. The problem with that would have been this, that in fact, first of all, the people would have had to commute quite a long distance, which would have been very, very inefficient indeed. Then, Nehemiah would have been faced with this mass of workers He'd have to find jobs for them all. They'd all be tripping over one another. And then he'd have to put on extra staff to serve the lunch, you know. He'd have to have very complicated arrangements to get all the bricks up in time or all the hewn stones in time and things. And on top of that, many of the workers would feel, but say the enemy attacked our family right over the other side of Jerusalem. It's going to take us ages to get back home. And so they would have been in danger. And so Nehemiah devised a wonderful scheme. Do you know what he did? He divided the whole of Jerusalem up into districts. And what he did was this. He said, now look, the people who live in that district are the ones responsible for building the wall there. We've all got the same vision, that is, of completely building the wall around the whole of Jerusalem. Yeah, we've all got that vision. But your responsibility is not to deal with a whole wall, but deal with this little section of the wall. This was wonderful. You see, the people who lived in an area wanted the wall to be built there. Extra protection, you see? And so they really put their hearts into this. They had hardly any distance to travel to get to the wall. Uh, food supply was not a problem. Logistics were not a problem at all. And they were on hand should their dear ones want to go shopping and have them look after the children. They were absolutely there in situ. And do you know... Under that scheme, Nehemiah took only 52 days to actually re rebuild the whole city wall of Jerusalem. I love this. Have you ever read that lovely testimonial book from, uh, I think it's Bangladesh, called Daktar? Have you ever read that? Vigo Olson, I think, wrote it. He had the job of building 4,000 refugee 
uh, type of dwellings. And he had a team of people who knew nothing about building. And so do you know what he did? He read the book of Nehemiah and he said, well, that's the way we're going to do it. And in 52 days, he completed 4,000 homes in Bangladesh. And it was all taken from the genius of Nehemiah. Let's just see that. Let's go to the book of Nehemiah. You'll find it in the group of books before Job, which is before Psalms. Nehemiah chapter 3. And some people you know who are reading the book of Nehemiah skip through Nehemiah 3 and just say, oh, these long lists in the Bible, oh, they're so boring. Why are they in there? I have promised, and I will do it one day, uh, to show you what wonderful teaching you can get from the lists in the Bible. They're in there for a wonderful purpose. Well, let's just have a look, and this actually shows who built which part of the wall. And look, I'm going to read from verse 16. Nehemiah 3.16, this is just a list, so-and-so built this bit, and so-and-so built that bit, and so it goes on. After him repaired Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk. This is verse 16 of Nehemiah 3. After him repaired Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, the ruler of the half-part of Bethzur, unto the place over against the sepulchres of David, and to the pool that was made, and unto the house of the mighty. After him repaired the Levites, Rehem, the son of Barni. Next unto him repaired Hashabiah, the ruler of the half-part of Kilah, sorry, Kila, in his part. After him repaired their brethren, Bevei, the son of uh, Hinadad, the ruler of the half-part of Kila. Now, it's just that little section. Can you see in that little section there, you have constant reference to the ruler of the half-district or the ruler of the half-part of so-and-so. And this tells us something wonderful. It tells us this, that Jerusalem was divided into districts. And over each district, there were two men who were set in a position of coordination and authority over that particular district. One over a half district, the other over a half district. And here you have some of the names that are actually given. And you see, under this system, it worked exceedingly well. And so this division was made, and he was able to keep in contact with everyone through these rulers that he had appointed in the particular place. So there's another way of dealing with large numbers and a difficult task. Let's go now to the book of Acts, and let's just have a look and see what they did. We've seen this in the very first Bible study in the Fellowship Life series, but I just want to go to verse 46. Oh, sorry, this is chapter 2, verse 46. And you remember here, the problem is they've had 3,000 saved. And their problem is how to deal with all 3,000. And notice what it says in verse 46. You had two types of gatherings here. All right, and here it is. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. How big was the temple? Well, the temple was big enough to take them all. And in these days, you know, they used to work from early in the morning to about midday, and then it was a hot afternoon. And they used to use the hot afternoon for Bible teaching and for worship. And so they used to come and gather in the temple all together while the temple was still up. And so that was a meeting of all of the believers at one time. And this is why, incidentally, we have a meeting like this morning and why on Sundays and Tuesdays we have other meetings which represent the whole of a fellowship. But on top of that, there were also these local area groups. Let's have a look at this. Notice what it says after the temple. Breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. And so, even though they were such a huge bunch... They all were in a locality. The people in these days didn't have telephones, you know, and they didn't have nice cars that they could dash into. And so they had to be within easy distance of one another. And so you found that a meeting developed in a house. The house was quite small, and probably this meant no more than about 10 to 15 people in each house. And so all round the place were dotted these local area groups, as it were, of very close communication and very close fellowship indeed. And so in the early church, there were these two types of meetings. It changed, of course, because the temple was destroyed 
And gradually you can look at archaeology and you can actually see how uh, Christians in the early days actually built extensions on their house, you know, to try and get bigger numbers in. And eventually, by about the third century, um, they had separate buildings to actually meet in. This is rather like the development of most fellowships. You begin in a small house and eventually end up under the table and over the table as well, people sitting there. And soon people have extensions built, but soon that's not big enough, and soon you have to go into a local hall. But soon you find you still have to keep the local group actually functioning and forming. And so we had to ask God for our own fellowship, what are we to do? And of course this is the job of eldership, to actually seek God, they have to give account one day of the way they have ruled in a particular fellowship. And as you know, we don't go for the heavy submission, which is really out of line and anti-biblical, but we do know our place. And I hope all believers here know their place. I will, when I deal with eldership, be dealing with what an elder can tell you to do and what an elder can't tell you to do. To do what rights you have, but also what it means to know those who have the rule over you and submit to them so that we get the pendulum right in the middle and nicely balanced. We'll be dealing with that when I come to that particular subject. So the elders had to seek the Lord as to what we should do. And we found this, that God led us to actually have meetings all together, but also to recognize that there were local area groups as well, districts within the fellowship, where the people who came to the fellowship actually lived, and that these were to be developed. Now, at first it was pretty difficult, but soon we found God was blessing us and people were being saved and adding to numbers in certain places. And then we found God sovereignly started moving elders around. They didn't know what they were doing, but uh, God did. So we ended up, and we have today, three elders now in Chichester, three in Bognor Regis, and two in the Barnum Group. And then we found that in most places God put two leaders in a particular group. And I will be dealing with the subject of leaders as well. And so we found groupings were coming out. By the, re by the way, there is another grouping which you should see in every fellowship, and they are friendship groups, you know? And you mustn't be ashamed of these friendship groups. These are outside local areas, and God has made us all different, and sometimes we like to spend times of relaxation and peace and social activity with people that we get on very well with. And around the fellowship you'll find there'll be people who are great friends, one over there and one over here, and they'll be in constant contact with one another. And in fact, you should find your friends within the fellowship somewhere. May I say this, there might be ten people in the midst of the fellowship that you count as your personal friends. Well, just because you don't count anyone else as your personal friends, you've still got to get on with everyone else, and you've still got to love them, and you've still got to have an open door to them. Can I just emphasize that point? And I don't want anyone to feel cut off just because, well, my group of friends only numbers eight, you know, and they seem to be friends with everyone else. If God has provided in the midst with you, and has provided for you in terms of friendship, then rejoice. We all need personal friends. Nevertheless, Whereas you can choose your friends, it is God who chooses your neighbours. And too much of Christianity has missed the whole essence of Christianity, which is this, that all who are born again are God's children, and you have a responsibility to love all of God's children, not just the few that you happen to like and get on well with. And that is why we do not have friendship groups within the fellowship, because there'll always be some people missed out or you'll always get the arguments occurring, and suddenly two people who were great friends are not friends anymore. And you'd have absolute anarchy ruling in the midst. It is true, you choose your friends, but it's God who chooses your neighbours. And this is wonderful, because you don't have the elders to blame, but you do have God to blame. Why has he done it? Why? He's done it for the same reason that he's put you in your family. Do you know you haven't been able to choose your family either? Have you? Would you have chosen your father and mother? Some of you would. Others would not. Would you have chosen that lovely dear brother that you've always had, had to put up with? Or your lovely sister? Would you have chosen them? No, you wouldn't particularly. And some people love their brothers and sisters. Others find them really quite a difficult a person to get on with, you know? It is God who has the choice. And here, God 
in our fellowship has actually said, I'm not letting my people escape. These are my glorious people. I love them. I'm crazy about them. And you're going to love them too if you love me. And in these local area groups, God is putting us in the nutcracker and he's trying to crack us. Some people try and climb out of it. There's another nutcracker waiting for them somewhere along the way. And we've got to really see that God is the one who has actually put these local area groups together. Can I immediately say here, I don't really want them called Friday night groups anymore. Simply because a Friday night meeting or a Thursday night meeting is not what the locality is about. What God has done in the locality is something that affects the whole of our life through all the week. And every single person who is a Christian and specifically who comes to the fellowship, is your responsibility in that local area group. There'll be some of them, as we'll see later, who may not, for various reasons, come to the one meeting a week that the locality will have, but nevertheless, we still have a responsibility to them. The locality is made up of all who are born again, and specifically those who are members of the fellowship in your immediate neighborhood. All right, let's uh, go to 1 John and let's just see how God really won't let us escape from his work. You see, it's so easy to be over-spiritual when we come to love, isn't it? Isn't it simple to actually start singing, I love you, Lord? So easy to do it. And to go around saying to everyone, oh, I really love the Lord. The problem is that none of us have seen the Lord. And you know, he may not be what you think he is when he actually appears. And it might be that he's more like that brother that you don't get on with than he is like you. We all assume he's a bit like us, don't we? I mean, all English people think God is, is English and a conservative. <laughs> and a monarchist as well. It's part of the, the characteristic, you know. But I've noticed in Sweden they all think he speaks Swedish. And they say, well, he speaks to me in perfect Swedish. In fact, of course, he's Jewish. I mean, Jesus Christ is Jewish. And when we meet our brother one day, it might not be the image that we had of him. Fortunately, we'll get on well with him because we shall be like him. The change is not going to occur in him. It's going to occur in us, which is good news. Look what it says in verse... Um, well, let's begin in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Not just your friends, not just that little group that you get on with. Anyone can do that. But let us love one another wherever you find one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. When I come on to evangelism, I'll be back to that verse. Go now to verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And notice this, his love was not based on friendship. When he loved you and sent his son to die for you, you were an enemy of his and you were a foul smell in his nostrils. But he loved you. Fantastic. If only we had that type of love for brothers and sisters in the fellowship. Oh yes, have our friends, but also have this searing love for the people of God. We will be transformed. Every fellowship will be transformed at this point. We're too choosy. That's the trouble, you know. Go on to verse... 20, and here's the nub of the matter. All right, here it is. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. And here is the acid test. Whoever the brother is, if he is one of the Lord's children, you have to love him. And don't think that you can say you love God if you don't love your brother whom you can see. That's just spiritual nonsense. This is the nitty-gritty of the gospel. I have to tell you this, and I feel so sad to say it. I have found that very, very often in fellowship groups, people who have been very awkward have come into the fellowship groups and have received love and love and love and love and have been transformed. And yet it's very often those people who have been so awkward who are then very choosy about their brothers and sisters afterwards. And I have been seared in my heart because I know God wasn't very choosy when he chose them. And he's loved them to pieces. 
and God's love has embraced everyone, and here they are, having been unacceptable to most people when they came in. They're now being rather choosy about who they like in the fellowship around the way. This is an absolute blot on the body of Christ and something that must be outlawed. We must learn that God has to deal with our hearts so we love everyone that God has put us in the midst, with, in the midst of. You know, this is why it's not right for Christians to go it alone. Some Christians do. They find it much easier to go it alone. Yes, I love the Lord, and I'm going to love him by myself. You know, I don't like those people. Well, this says you're a hypocrite. And more than that, you're a liar. Or some people go it alone with just a nice little group. You know, well, we just have a little friendship. Sometimes in fellowships, we haven't seen it very much in our fellowship, you get a little clique of people formed, you know. Well, they don't think much of the rest of us, and be quite honest about that, they don't. But we're pretty sorted out, you know. We've got it pretty well sorted out. We're going to have fellowship. Well, I find it difficult to love the Lord and praise the Lord among them lot, but uh, I can among you. And that's what they're saying. And here's this choosy, selective thing, which is an abomination in the sight of God. For God's crazy about all his people. He loves them to pieces. And God has to start discipline those believers. I warn you, don't ever get into that type of situation. If you do, God is going to come down and say, it's an abomination in my nostrils and I won't put up with it. We've got to ask God to deal with us. And you know, these local area groups are the perfect forum for this to be dealt with. For you will find you are in the midst of people who sometimes aren't like you and sometimes who you don't understand. And I have found from personal experience that these local groups need an awful lot of death to self all the time. And it generally sends you to your knees saying, Lord, either change him or failing that, change me, Lord. <laughs> and that's what happens, you know? And it takes time, but soon the corners are knocked off and you find soon there is the jigsaw experience. We begin fitting in with one another. Not forced in. At first it feels like forcing, but gradually the Lord peels off the edge and you settle in very nicely with one another. These local area groups, and I make no bones about it, are difficult groups. They are. Some people, to try and stop them being difficult, um, issue little booklets. How to run a local fellowship group. This is it. Get it all absolutely sorted out, and everyone just sits there, and the chap at the front says, now, uh, shut up, everyone. This is how we're going to do it. And so he leads from the front, and he absolutely dominates everything, and if anyone's any problem, he says, out you go, I'm reporting you to the elders. And off they go. And isn't that nice? You know, it's all nicely under control. Except God says, well, I still can't deal with them. And more than that, I can't deal with a chap who's in control. This is the real problem. In the way that God designs these local area groups, everyone's life is going to get sorted out. And I know it's the leaders very often of these groups who find the pressure sometimes harder than anyone else. Listen, some people buy houses, you know, that are falling to pieces. And what they do, they cover up the rotten old floorboards with carpets. They put wallpaper on the walls, even though they're about to fall down, hoping the wallpaper will keep the wall up. <laughs> and they do all sorts of devices to keep the house up. And they live in peace with this really tottering and teetering building all the way around them. And they live there in perfect peace and harmony until one day the whole thing falls down on top of their heads. And do you know, sometimes fellowships are like that. They meet in a big amorphous mass. And of course, when you're in a crowd, you can just hide away, can't you? Just hide from the people you don't like, don't get on with. Oh, it's so easy. The trouble is, as soon as problems hit or pressure comes upon that group, the whole thing is going to collapse. The Friday night groups are, dis sorry, the local area groups and specifically the Friday <laughs> meetings. Shucks. What a shame. The local area groups are designed to rip the wallpaper off the walls. They're designed to pull the carpets up to let us have a look at the cracks. I don't want to be um, an elder in a fellowship where we imagine that everything's absolutely honky-dory all the time. If there are problems to be dealt with, you've got to strip things off and you've got to get down to the problems to get them dealt with. And that's what the local area groups are designed to do. And that's why, you know, sometimes they are so painful as we're going through. When you start living in close proximity with other people, you soon begin to find their faults. And more than that, you begin to find your own limitations. Now, at that point, you have a choice. You either withdraw from the scene and say, I'm coming out, I can't, I'm not going to go, you know. Or you fulfill the law of Christ, you fulfill your duty in Christ by saying, Lord, 
I have a vision for what you're doing through these local groups, and I'm going to see it through in your name. And please change me or change anyone else, but we're going to see it through. And so you find that one's dedica your dedication is tested to the limit at that time. But I have good news for you, you know, that God will bless you as you persevere. God doesn't want a retreat. If you retreat, my soul shall have no pleasure in you. But he wants people who will push forward. Go to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5. <clears throat> and look what it says here. Let your moderation, Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. And the word moderation literally means big-heartedness. Let your big-heartedness be known unto all men. I've sometimes translated it as pliability. Now, we're not very good at pliability. You know, we tend to be rather odd characters and we like to stick out in a particular way. But God says, oh, I'm going to get you like blue tack and warm you up and push you about and soon you'll be able to actually fit into any mould at all. You'll be nice and pliable. In this word, moderation is meant considerateness, love, gentleness, understanding, always seeing the other point of view. And here, what Paul is saying is this. This is what God desires from all of his children that we should be all things to all men, that we should be able to get on with every type of person as far as it's possible within us, and those still on the outside, we're going to ask God to increase us, to wrap our arms around them as well, so that our big-heartedness begins to show in the midst of the meeting. And then you know what happens is this, we suddenly find that God's children are really as wonderful as he always said that they were. And through these local area groups, we are seeing just how small-hearted we are. And we, I trust, are getting on our knees to seek God for a greater heart to love all. You know, we need arms about 100 miles long in the body of Christ so that we can encompass everyone who comes in. We've got to ask God to give us this. This is a gift from heaven, you know, that every one of us has got to actually claim. And then we begin to find that we, through these local area groups, start being... Uh, more pliable right the way along. I have to tell you this. Do you know, I've done some research in this. 70% of all missionaries return home from the mission field early, and many of them are disillusioned and broken characters. And the major reason why they are disillusioned is because they haven't been able to get on with the other missionaries on the mission field. What a tragedy and what a blight and what an indictment against the body of Christ that these people who are out there on God's service and really ploughing into the work of the Lord find it's other Christians who are the enemy and not the enemy himself. This must never be true in a fellowship and I'd rather have all of these problems come up so that God can actually deal with us. At the moment that we find it's getting tough, we have then to make a decision. And the decision we have to make is for Jesus Christ at that point. I have to tell you this, that uh, in the early days we had Friday night meetings and they were pretty tough, right? I had scars for some years from one or two of them. But they did something. And the 20 or 30 people who were at those meetings, there is such a core of love and unity and respect for one another that has never been broken, even though these people may not see one another very much. It's still there, the oneness. Because, you see, it's been moulded in the furnace. That's the glorious thing. When the Bible says to us, love one another with fervent love, it's the word for white-hot love. And it's like this, you take two pieces of metal and you apply heat to them and then you start hitting them. You know, and soon they coalesce into one. This is what actually happens when Christians have to meet together in these local area groups and when they readily submit themselves to it. So there will be trouble. There will be difficulty. But the difficulty won't last for too long, you know, because soon God will start dealing with your own heart. And I want to say one thing on this. Through these local area groups, nothing is being expected of you which is not expected of those in difficult barren areas around the country. Do you know there are people around the country who long to see God forming a thriving fellowship in their own community? 
and very often they preach the gospel and soon people start getting saved. But the trouble is the people that get saved are awkward characters. Now if those people actually say, I'm not having them around and boot them out, the fellowship is not going to grow in that particular area. And so they have to learn how to encompass everyone. Oh, it's so difficult to do. And all that is happening in the local groups is you are being expected to do the same. By the way, I should tell you this. I have to chuckle sometimes on the phone when I receive phone calls. Occasionally, I get a phone call from someone who lives in Lower Bootle or something like that up north, and they ring me and they say, Roger, nothing's happening in this area. Oh, we want close fellowship with people, but no one's interested, and we want body ministry, no one's interested. So the Lord's shown us we should move down to Chichester. And I say, well, if the Lord is showing you that, uh, can I just pray about it? Could you ring me in two weeks' time or something? And they say, oh, dear, so slow. But God, I give God time to work. And, you know, sometimes I know other Christians who also want fellowships in Lower Bootle. I'm sorry for those people in Lower Bootle. I don't really know anyone in Lower Bootle. And I ring them up, and I actually say, oh, hello, um, are you still trying to form a fellowship up there? Oh, yes, we're still trying to form a fellowship. Well, so-and-so's just been on the phone. Why don't you get together with them. Well, we tried it. They came to two meetings, and afterwards they said, well, really, we're not putting up with this, and they left. And this is the reason, I've found this very often, that the work has not begun, because certain people actually won't embrace everyone. You know, they've got strict ideas, and everyone's going to be like them. And this is the funny thing, and why I chuckle. Now they want to come to the fellowship. And soon, after they've come down, within, say, six months, they'll be put in a local area group. And do you know what happens? Why? They meet people who are very like the people up in Lower Bootle <laughs> that they never could get on with anyway. And suddenly, they are stuck. And God is saying to them, I'm not letting you off the hook at all. You are going to have your life dealt with, and the nutcracker is going to be applied, and it's going to be done in the local area. After people have been trained in these local area groups, I believe with all my heart, you know, that they will be in a fit condition to go anywhere and begin a fellowship. You can't be choosy if you're going to begin a fellowship because God is not choosy. Oh, if only he had chosen people just like you, you know? All extroverts and all Welshmen. Wouldn't it be easy? <laughs> it would be simple. I would have an absolute marvellous time, you see? So can you see, one of the major reasons for these local area groups to be in existence is to show up the weaknesses and to get us dealt with. It's no good having meetings en masse and thinking everything's absolutely fine when underneath there isn't this girder-like love between us. And these local areas are there to actually produce it. And you'll find this, as your heart expands in your local area group, your heart will also expand to other local area groups as well who will have similar types of people. Persevere is what I'm saying. Now that's one reason for local area groups. The second reason is this, that in the local area groups we make sure that everyone is cared for. God actually has put us in the body to have responsibility for one another. And it's through these local area groups that this responsibility often is shown. Do you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan where Jesus said to the fellow, love your neighbor? And the chap said, well, who is my neighbor? In other words, well, I'm going to choose who my neighbor is. You meet Christians like this all the time. They do lots of good deeds for that chap and this chap and this chap over there because they're the neighbors they like. But Jesus then tells the parable and he ends up and says, who has been the better neighbor? It's not a friendship thing. It's the Old Testament law, which says this, if someone in your locality is in need, then you are against the law and against the Lord if you do not supply that particular need. Now this means that it's the people in your locality that are your direct responsibility. And so we can't get out of this at all. We have to see that our first responsibility as are those around us. This includes all those, even though they may not go to the meeting that you will have uh, once a week in that local area group. And this is wonderful, you know, because it means whoever is in trouble, someone in the local area group will know about the trouble that they're in, and they'll either galvanize the rest of the group to help, or if th that group can't help, they'll bring in help from outside. You know, we had a woman who, in the fellowship, who had a miscarriage, and the local group around her couldn't completely supply everything she needed. So one of the group got on to our full-time 
uh, elder with pastoral responsibility, and he organized a complete rota for this particular person. Some of the groups are working extremely well as far as this caring is concerned. I understand one of the groups uh, um, have a rule that they give up a day a month to help one another in a practical way. Well, isn't that a lovely thing to do? And just last week, it, uh, people from one of the local groups uh, saw me and they said, we've been amazed. We were in real need at one point, and just as we were in need, someone arrived, took all of our washing off, someone got it dried, someone did our shopping, someone looked after the children. This went on and on and on until the need was absolutely finished. And this is the type of thing that should be going on in the local area group. And we've got to understand this is top priority as far as we are concerned. It's your neighbours that God has put you among that actually delineate, you know, mark out your area of responsibility. And if you are failing in that area, you are failing full stop. So don't try and get out of this. Your responsibility is your immediate local area and anyone else you come across who really is seriously in need of help. When I come on to evangelism, I'm also going to explain how the local areas will soon be the major base for evangelism in the fellowship. But that's a slightly different subject. All right, having then said why we have these local area groups and told you that they will be difficult, I want to talk about the groups and the meetings, and I want to uh, list just some things that we're looking for in these, in these area groups. All right, and I think I've got about five or six things, and these will, I think, get it quite clear. Uh, first of all, the local area groups should be small enough for people to be looked after well. And this generally means that we must aim at a meeting, I think, of no less than five and no more than 12. I think it's that type of figure, and perhaps this goes to about 10 in a local area meeting, which will give us about the right size in the local area group. By the way, there are going to be times when it will be smaller than this in some and bigger than that in others. And uh, God has gradually got to formulate things so that all these groups come into the right size. Also, when evangelism begins and when you find numbers increasing, there will be a time when you might go up to 18. At that point, it's time to then split the local area group. But they must be small enough for all... Uh, to be able to be looked after as well as possible. And notice the groups are local, that is they're based on geography, not on friendship. There will be a few exceptions to this rule, but not many, and that will be, of course, the job of the elders to seek God about these individual cases. Okay? So that's the first thing. The second is this. The people who go to the meeting, I think, must go regularly and must commit themselves to regular attendance. They must also have the vision for the local area. And I don't like to use this word because people misuse it in this day, but they must be committed to one another. And this is very, very important. All right? It's no good going once in a while and thinking you are, to, to specifically to the meeting this is, and thinking that God is able to deal with your life. That's not it. You've got to try and get regular attendance if you really mean business with God about him dealing with your life. And the reason I mention this committed factor here is this, that in the early days of the fellowship, in a Friday night meeting, one woman who is a mature woman decided she was going to share deep personal problems. And we had someone there who actually, it, I think it was their first meeting that they'd ever been at. They'd been saved a total of about four months. And this woman opened up her heart and poured out her heart and it just came out. And immediately after she finished, everyone just put their heads down and started seeking God about her problem. Instantly, this chap started talking. Oh, he had the answer to the whole lot. Couldn't understand what her problems were. You know, I've been saved three weeks and uh, I haven't got these problems. And out it all came. His pat, simple answers. His pat, simple answers over these things, you see. And in fact, the woman was damaged through that. And that is why when people come into the fellowship, very often we ask for just a six-month period, you know, of just dwelling in the fellowship before they actually join the, uh, the, the group meeting, right? Obviously, they're in the locality immediately and must be looked after as a member of the locality, but they may not then go to the meeting sort of immediately, all right? And that's 
quite important. So regular attendance is necessary, and this will really sort out those who are committed and those who are not. I have to tell you this, there are joy boys around in the body of Christ. People who think that God is just there to excite them, give them interesting experiences all the time. And that's what Christianity is about. Well, it isn't about that. Christianity is about Christ being formed in you. And that means at times that God has to get hold of you and get to grips with your life. And you've got to submit to it. Uh, three, I think that in these groups we have to learn basic discipline. Most Christians are totally undisciplined and it's appalling to see the lack of discipline. This is why it's essential the meetings begin on time. You'll notice in our fellowship all our big meetings begin dead on the button. Yes? Some fellowships I go to, I'm still waiting half an hour after the meeting was due to begin and they still haven't yet got down to worship. All that's terribly wrong. And here we learn basic discipline and that is why I, should I be a group leader, would actually say the meeting will last for about an hour and a half of course, it, on exceptional evenings, it may go slightly over, but generally to teach discipline to the people in the midst. Number four, and this I think is a helpful point, I do believe that in these local area group meetings, there should be no stereotyped meeting at all. Some people seem to want the same type of meeting every time people meet together. I don't believe that's right. And I believe we can be free to vary these meetings. They ought to be a lovely diet you know, rather like a Chinese meal with all sorts of little things added in. And I think it's important that uh, people see that they mustn't bow the knee always to the same type of meeting. Neither should they be mini-Sundays or mini-Tuesday night meetings. Let me suggest a few things that you might do in these uh, group meetings. For example, you could have a whole meeting actually asking how you could look after one another better and actually seeing where the weaknesses are in the particular group and how these weaknesses can be plugged. That's a very good thing to do. There might be new Christians, and you say, now we need to make special attention for them and spend the whole evening discussing that. That's a very good thing. Uh, you might, for example, uh, decide to read a certain passage of Scripture through during the week and then uh, uh, in the meeting actually come and share your views on that particular passage or what God has said to you through that particular passage. That's perfectly all right. Another meeting may be just a praise meeting. I think every meeting should have some praise that Jesus is worshipped and should have some prayer. But sometimes a whole meeting can be de devoted to praise. That's a wonderful thing. Similarly, another meeting might be devoted to prayer and nothing else. And you will have agreement. Another meeting may be actually one for ministering to one another so that people can bring up deep problems and share them. That shouldn't happen in every meeting, but it might happen on particular evenings. And may I say this, another meeting might be just a time of relaxation. And that's a very good thing as well. I remember one meeting where everyone was deadly serious, and somehow there was a heaviness on the meeting. I said, Lord, what should I do? And the Lord said, put the kettle on. <laughs> and off I went and put the kettle on. We had a nice cup of tea, and do you know we had the time fellowshipping and talking in Jesus which was really wonderful. Uh, so that's number four. Number five, very quickly, the Lord has led us to have two leaders where possible over each group. And later on this year, I will actually be doing leadership a leadership training course, open not just for leaders, but for anyone who aspires to the office of a bishop. Praise the Lord. And so there are two leaders. This is a very good thing because they can check one another you know, and sometimes, I'm, well, I'm sure most leaders in, in the fellowship here like the fact that there are two of them. You know, I think it's very good. Okay, and I'll be dealing with leadership and what leaders are to do in a later Bible study. And uh, lastly, number six, and I don't know whether you know this, but over each of the local area groups, there is an elder. An elder is attached to each local area group. And he's there for this reason, so that if, for example, there should be a serious problem there and the leaders don't seem to be sorting it out, you can then approach this elder. And may I say one other thing? The reason we have plurality of eldership is this, that if you don't get satisfaction from that elder, you can go to another elder on the subject. You can go to them all on the subject if necessary. Now these, therefore, are the main points. Can I just end by saying this? If we will see that God has made us a unity, that we are one now in the body of Jesus Christ, and if we can see that his, 
His heart's desire is that we should be one, that all the world may see that we are one and that we love one another. Then we'll begin to see the relevance of these, these groups. And then we'll begin to see why God has called us into locality. Listen, as a fellowship, we're not in the business of religion and we're not trying to build a big structure so that everyone can see how successful we are. We're in the business of true spirituality, which is Christ in me, revealed in me, so that in all my reactions, Jesus Christ shows. And he then is the hope of glory, not just for me, but for the whole world. May the Lord bless us all. Amen.